once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and we enter the July entry now into our James Bond character study, and we are finally up to what is now current Bond. Mm. Maybe against his own will, and we'll get to that as this series rolls on, no doubt. But Daniel Craig is the subject of our latest James Bond character study, as every month now in the lead-up to No Time to Die, which... Hopefully we'll actually come out in November, but with the world as it is, who knows? But at least that's the plan for now. We will be going through one Daniel Craig film every month until then to review that movie. We're starting off today with Casino Royale, his debut into the Bond universe. I am co-host Mike One. This is co-host also Mike. So can you imagine if we have to prolong the James Bond character study like another six months? I mean, we'd have stuff to do. Like we could do a whole episode on the songs. We could do a whole episode on the cars. A lot. <laughs> of different things obviously we're going to rank the bonds at the at the very end of this but uh i guess we could you know fill it out for an 18 month we'd have to go right into austin powers and just compare what's farcical and what's not yes we would have to analyze austin powers (laughs) and uh make it an austin powers character study but on daniel craig i i think he is the bond that i most want to be but simultaneously he's also the bond that i most want to not become because this movie is rough on him too yeah this is a fascinating study gets a little dark at times and we're certainly going to hit on all of it if you've not joined us before for a james bond character study what we do is uh, like all of our reviews we have a non-spoiler half followed by a spoiler filled half so uh, again we're concentrating just on casino royale this time we're not going to give you anything about the plot, or we're not going to give it away, at least, in the first half. It's all going to be all about Daniel Craig's getting into character, his historical impact in playing James Bond. Then there will be a spoiler warning, and then on the other side of that is when you will hear all the ins and outs and a lot of other, uh, I guess, complaints that we have about the portrayal of Bond. At least that's how it's been historically. Maybe with the more modernized version of James Bond and the current version of Bond, uh, it'll be a little, uh, hopefully, more progressive. Yeah, they're Fingers getting better. Crossed. They're getting better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I'll hang my hat on that. So let's start by talking about how Daniel Craig got into the Bond role here, Michael. Yeah, and we'll start with his bio and casting story. So Daniel Craig was born in Chester, England in 1968. Mike, he's probably got the most boring biography of all these James Bonds, you know, because <laughs> some of them have some wild backstories. Go back and listen to our other yeah. you know, five of them. But uh, Daniel Craig just had kind of a more normal childhood. He is a child of divorce. Uh, he did struggle in school, but he excelled uh, on the stage. I mean, he acted in school plays from a very young age. He was accepted into a drama school at 16. A year after his graduation, he nabbed his first major film role for John G. Avildsen, the director of Rocky and, Kar- and the Karate Kid, that role being in The Power of One, and that essentially launched his career. My mother knows him as, is that the Bond that's short and blonde-haired? He's the Uh, blonde Bond, yes. (laughs) Craig's casting story isn't all that eventful either. It kind of follows in his lead-up there. Uh, The media had him on a short list. Eon wanted him. MGM wanted him. And although the story after the fact is that producer Barbara Broccoli had to convince Craig to play the role with promises that he could, quote, bring more emotional depth to the character, it could not have been a hard decision for Craig to take this job. No, this has worked out swimmingly for all involved, (laughs) I would say. But luckily, the backstory behind Casino Royale is much more interesting, and it dates all the way back to the novelist Ian Fleming's first sale of the rights to this story, his first Bond novel, because several years before Dr. No and the Broccoli, Saltzman, Connery productions of James Bond, Fleming first sold the rights to Casino Royale for $6,000 only, $6,000 to producer Gregory Radoff. Uh, Radoff takes this property. He fails to get financing for the film. There's even a point where he tries to go with Jane Bond. He wanted to make a female Bond back Talk in about the, progressive. Yeah, the late 50s there, but that didn't work out either. And Radoff dies in 1960, unfortunately. His widow sells the rights to her husband's former agent, Charles K. Feldman. So Feldman seemed to have a deal to join forces and co-produce a Connery Bond alongside Eon and MGM. But when this deal fell apart on the final split numbers, Feldman shopped the project to the rest of Hollywood. He found a buyer with Columbia Pictures. They would ultimately produce a comedic take on the character with 1967's Casino Royale yeah, starring Peter Sellers. Not the greatest of <laughs> movies, let's just say. But it did well. It made like $41 million on a $11 million budget. 
So it was this ridiculous production where there's all these horror stories from that production. Woody Allen's involved. A lot of stars. It's a mess. Well, the 2006 version turns out a little cleaner, I would say. And <laughs> yes. uh, Columbia is also important to our 2006 rendition here because MGM and Columbia would finally agree on that joint production as part of a larger deal. And Mike's going to give you the details on that. Yeah, this is a long, complicated story of litigation and deal making. I probably should have had you read this segment, Isn't but it then always? again, yeah, yeah but th- th- it would have gone you know an hour and fifteen minutes long if you were allowed <laughs> to read it. So I'm just going to make it concise because essentially, Eon and MGM they wanted to get all of the rights to James Bond and all of his properties, right? And in the mid to late '90s, we have a couple different you know negotiation uh, uh, time periods. Obviously, it doesn't work out for the third Dalton film, The Property of a Lady. That title probably wouldn't have worked out either, Thank as you God it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so that was like a big hiatus, and it actually forced Dalton to step down, and Brosnan stepped in. Uh, there's another big negotiating period in the late 90s. 1997, Eon and MGM, they acquired the film rights to Never Say Never Again. That was made in the 80s with Sean Connery coming back. Mm-hmm. And then in 1999, Sony and MGM probably made one of the biggest trades in film history. In exchange for the rights for Casino Royale and the early Bond novels, MGM gave Sony the rights to Spider-Man. That's, That's correct. Crazy. Bond was traded for Spider-Man in order for this Casino Royale to exist in the Daniel Craig, Martin Campbell adaptation. I am such a sucker, and we have plans. Uh, we've talked about it. It's been one of our longstanding plans. We're going mm-hmm. to do it, uh, talking about like sliding door moments and what-ifs. I'm such a sucker for what-ifs that I will always believe the backroom dealings of studios is far more fascinating than anything that's ever put on screen. This is... I mean, this changes the industry, basically. These two giant, multi-billion dollar revenue-making properties being traded for one another straight up. This is like the Jason Kidd for Stefan Marbury deal when they were both at the peak of their powers, a one-for-one, and see how it plays out. Who's, who do you think wins that trade right now, Mike? Well, I know the Knicks just lost that trade back in the day. <laughs> Correct. The <laughs> Correct. But uh, the fact that they're both still making these products for the for themselves signifies that they both won that deal in a way. I mean, yes, Sony has not been able to take Spider-Man necessarily, you know, by themselves and ma- and make successful properties one after another, but they had a franchise obviously in the 90s with the Sam Raimis mm-hmm. and they, then they failed and then they brought Marvel in and now they're starting to succeed again with into the, into the Spider-Verse and the whole Venom universe. So, I would argue that both sides won the deal. I mean, the Bond movie's been making money ever since. Yeah, it's it, this is a crazy, crazy moment in uh, Hollywood history there. And like uh, you said, I think I agree. It has worked out for both parties. As far as Casino Royale's box office numbers go, it was made on a budget of $150 million. It ends up pulling in 167.4 domestically and ends up doing about $600 million, just shy of $600 million worldwide. The critical numbers are equally very, very high. It carries an 80 Metascore, a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's tied for the second highest Rotten Tomato critical score behind Goldfinger's 98%, and alongside From Russia with Love and Dr. No, which are also at 95%. Yeah, as for awards, Casino Royale did extremely well at the BAFTAs. It had one win. Uh, well, it, it, it did well in getting nominated. because It, had it did well for win. a Bond film, so Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't look at all the other BAFTA award ceremonies. I probably should have done that. But uh, I, I would imagine this was as many you know, nominations as it ever got. Because one win for Best Sound Effects, nine total nominations, including wow. Best British Film, Adapted Screenplay, Score, Lead Actor Daniel Craig, Cinematography, Editing, Production Design, and VFX. And I know this is not the character study to talk about production values, Mike, but my God, was this a beautifully crafted, a a gorgeous looking movie. Yeah, I agree. There was a lot of they jumped off the uh, absurdity that they have kind of backed themselves into in terms of uh, the end of Pierce Brosnan's (laughs) run. We'll get into all of it. Let's talk about the historical significance of Daniel Craig taking this role and what it did for James Bond and the industry at large. So right from the first scenes, this is the definition of smoldering, (laughs) isn't it? Like, I know The Rock did a whole thing in Jumanji about smoldering. It was hilarious, but... Jawline made of granite. He is smoldering. This entire performance, and it's just so good. It's so impressive. I 
really appreciated the introduction of this new Bond because, yes, you have this guy who's maybe the most athletic Bond out of anyone you've casted because he's actually legitimately, like, fit and muscular and The most ripped. The most ripped Bond yet. And he's not grandpa-aged yet, so you don't have to play camera tricks with him. Uh, And yet, he's still kind of the most faulted Bond yeah. in turn like he even in the first bad guy that he's trying to apprehend at the very beginning of the film and running through and going through all this scaffolding, the bad guy is just far more athletic than Bond is. And even in just chasing the bad guy, Bond has faults. He lands on his ass when jumping over a fence. He falls short a couple times. He ends up hanging off these high cliffs. Uh, I thought they did a really good job immediately humanizing and making this Bond more relatable. Uh, whether they kept that up throughout the movie is something up for debate, I think. But I think at least as term- in terms of an introduction for a new Bond, I really appreciated what they w- what they did with Daniel Craig. Overall, I loved how they raised the level of antagonism in this film. So you're right. I mean, he's the fittest Bond ever, and yet he's at a disadvantage in every fight somehow. He's the right. smartest Bond ever, and he makes some dumbass, arrogant mistakes throughout the plot. I mean, he's a great poker player. He's a great computer hacker. I, I almost wondered at times, like, mm-hmm. if he's too much of a superhero, he's, he's too good at other things. But at least they characterize him as such throughout the plot and it builds on itself it's not just sean connery going i was first at at oxford in foreign languages the kim jong-un of bonds now just take my word for it i shot an 18 on 18 holes you know yeah it's not that he's not flexing his muscles and his knowledge of caviars i mean this is a james bond that is is capable as you would think a super spy should be capable but at the same time the super bad guys are just kicking his ass from beginning to end and i love that i think you need that in a hero versus villain story especially because we hadn't i mean we had gone so far afield from Mm. what like any kind of believability and i it's obvious that this movie wanted to be more gritty and be more real and you know, we're not dealing with invisible cars gliding through in a giant ice palace with a garden underneath it. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, I like the fact that we're not rooting for the villains in this movie to the point where, like, <laughs> just shoot them. You got that laser. Like, they, oh, my God, just shoot them with the laser. The right. super late. No, that doesn't happen here. I do wonder if this Bond is too much of an anti-hero, and I think the script and I think the filmmakers are wrestling with that fact. But yeah, we're coming off agree. a decade. I mean, the 90s into the 2000s, we're coming off of the decade of the anti-hero from TV and Tony Soprano, from film with the Dominic Toretto's and Fast and Furious. It, it bleeds into Walter White. Even Tony Stark is kind of an unlikable you know, launching point for his character in the MCU. So this is a ruthless bond. And I wonder if it's more of a hallmark of the times. We're going to kind of debate that in spoilers for sure. Well, talk to us, Mike. Who was in charge of writing Bond this way, and who did the script and screenplay for this? I love so much that they bought brought Martin Campbell back to reboot. I can't believe it's the same guy. Yeah. it's. I mean, he's made good movies one after another, so I think they recognized his talent. But, I mean, for him to re- re- reboot or reboot, I think I should say <laughs> reboot. Why am I pronouncing it that way? But for him to reboot this franchise twice – with GoldenEye and then this movie. I mean, he made two of the best Bonds. I mean, we're going to get into it at the end of this series and rank these movies, but, you know, from Russia with Love's really good and, and Dr. No's strong, but I, I tell you, man, Martin Campbell's Bonds are awesome. He's two for two. I wonder why they didn't stick with him. They would eventually let Sam Mendes do two in a row, mm-hmm. so I'm kind of upset by that, but Martin Campbell, man, that guy can direct a movie. It's not as though... Uh, he's also done Vertical Limit, for those of you who are into the rock climbing genre. Or, he did. He did do that. That wasn't his best, but it's still <laughs> but No, Vertical Limit was the, was the medics, right? The medics on the snowy mountain, I think. Uh, they even were, found yeah, a way to say you've reached your vertical limit, I think, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. Anyway. Chris uh, O'Donnell was in yeah, Vertical Limit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the medics on the snowy mountaintop. Uh, <laughs> regardless, that has to be a feat that I don't think has ever been done before with a major franchise. And not that James Bond was ever in financial trouble, because even the worst of Bond, at this point anyway, in the 80s and 90s, the worst of Bond was still doing like three to one in terms of revenue dollars versus production dollars. So they were still making money on it regardless, but he did save the series. It needed reinvigorating badly 
twice. And he was the guy that did it both times. It needed it probably more so with Goldeneye more than anything. Uh, and he did that. And Goldeneye I still remember very, very fondly. And then he did it again here with Daniel Craig reintroducing in a totally different way uh, this Bond. And yeah, he, he deserves all sorts of praise for that. Now, as for the screenwriters, this is a strange backstory because we have, you know, the writers of The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. They do take the first hacks at the screenplay. And, Mike, they wrote Christmas Jones. They wrote Tsunami Sailing in those previous movies. And they wrote <laughs> Moon Lasers and all that nonsense in the last two Pierce movies. And yet you have this just, like, grizzled, you know, action movie. Like, this is hard-boiled Bond, if there if he ever was one. And I think the, the writer that pulled it all together was Paul Haggis. Even though, when you hear that Paul Haggis was brought in, he was only brought in for the finale, when you read stories about it nowadays. Now, once you change the end, maybe Martin Campbell injected all of his own connections throughout it. But that, mm. that would be my guess, because I don't think you go from die another day kind of story to a BAFTA nominated best adapted screenplay without you know some some real writers that can flex their muscles in this especially in the treatment of the female characters sure I mean, we're one movie removed from die another day to oh, this thank movie. god it's just I, I can't believe it's the same writers I misspoke when I said it was Martin Campbell uh, I meant the, the writers on this I, I can't believe it's the same guys but this whole movie really reminded me a bit of like De Palma's Mission Impossible mm. uh, in, in terms of an introduction of a leading man for a franchise in terms of, of kind of taking what you think you know about the series and really casting it aside everything had a sense of realism to it it was still fantastic in concept and improbable but running down a tarmac and jumping on the backs of moving trusts is at least more plausible again than you know glacier racing all across a frozen <laughs> ocean so well, I was in for it. It's not just about the spectacle now. Now they right. have, they own you know like the first bunch of novels so they have a through line for the first you know, four or five stories of this fran new franchise and of this reboot, one might say. <laughs> a smart person might say. So, I like it. Work it in. But basically, you got, you know, a setup. This is act one of Daniel Craig's overall story. So mm -hmm. that's something to factor in, too. Like, he doesn't necessarily have to end this movie the way he needs to end the series. And even in a moral, ethical sense, which we're going to talk about. So you have perhaps the scariest Bond movie too. I wanted to mention that in non-spoilers because Bond is as vulnerable as he ever gets. This is a messed up story. These villains yeah. truly are horrid and it's not just in a muscle flex sort of way. It's not just in a threatening way. I mean, they put Bond through the ringer in this movie. It's some gross stuff. Yeah, I uh, agree with everything you said. It's it's shocking, too, coming off the tone of Die Another Day to, versus how kind of real this all feels. I'm excited to get into it, and I think it's well worth it. I know it's carrying an 8.0 still on IMDb to this day. That's very high mm -hmm. for a movie score, period. So I'm, I'm excited to hear uh, what we think of it and get into the plot and spoilers, and I think we can do that uh, after this spoiler warning. Spoilers ahead! I have a dinner jacket. There are dinner jackets and dinner jackets. This is the letter. And I need you looking like a man who belongs at that table. How the... It's tailored. I sized you up the moment we met. This is a spoiler warning. All right, this is the spoiler section of the James Bond character study brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar, where we are focusing on Casino Royale, Daniel Craig's first turn as the double O agent. Uh, if you've not seen the movie, this is a good place to hit pause, go watch it, and we will be here when you get back, because from here on out, we have segments dedicated to Bond franchise titles that are going to break down this film and the spoilers within. So, Mike, let's start with the spy who's not me, and we're talking the fantasy element of Bond as to why we want to but could never be this James Bond. Now, this James Bond is earning his newly found double O, right? I mean, he is just been promoted by M and he's trying to make a name for himself in many ways. We see his first two kills in the in the opening sequence. He has a chip on his shoulder, and I'm saying this is a fantasy element because he has got this regular guyness about him somehow. 
Somehow he's still got regular guyness about him because he's sticking it to the rich throughout this story. He gets to kill off that turncoat superior in the first scene that's mm. trying to talk down to him. He gets to stick it to the rich guys who think he's a valet and ruin all their cars. He gets to win another rich guy's car at the greatest hotel in the history of ever. <laughs> and then he gets to drop that FU line at the end of it. Oh, and the valet ticket. Oh, I just loved it. That, that was the best very good. line. Yeah. And then on top of all that, he makes out with the bad guy's wife in the ensuing sequence. That's not going to be the last time that comes up in this review, but go ahead. <laughs> I do think they recognize how attractive all of the women and how attractive Bond is in this movie. I mean, every single woman. There's a staring contest. I mean, they could almost do close-ups if they were getting, you know, schlocky with this movie about how every woman turns and looks at them, about how, you know, women are on the beach, on horses. This was a very... Uh, I don't know whether I want to say sensual or erotic uh, type of oh. take on, but yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of skin, there's a lot of making out, and yet I was less offended by it totally. in total than the one sex scene in Die Another Day because that was so just just done for a man's libido's sake. Right, but this is equal opportunity flirting in most cases. And then they actually use his flirtatiousness against him with Vesper, so I really like that. And the setup with the uh, Mrs. Demetrius character... I just thought it was a great one, two, three kind of meet cute. The whole thing. I mean, obviously Bond's working her to get information. Mm-hmm. He's not just looking for a tryst, which is actually refreshing. He does not go- consummate their little, you know, romance, their little affair there. And I thought that was excellent. But I mean, the lines, the back and forth lines. If I ever have, I might just raise my hands and go yes with two fists <laughs> in the air. If I ever flirted this effectively, and that would obviously ruin it. And I would. I wouldn't get the girl in the end, but it's about the little victories, Mike. Yes. I just might, I'll be like, that's the greatest movie line I came up with in the heat of a moment of real life. But the girl would walk away and look at the good with the bad sometimes, you know? But I mean, oh my God is obviously they made googly eyes at each other, him coming out of the water, her on the horse. Then in the next, next scene, you know, she's embarrassed by her husband. The husband's emasculated by bond at the cards table and at the car. My goodness. She's like, I can't go home with you. I'm not that cruel, you know, referring to her husband being at home. And then he just goes, maybe you're out of practice. And she's just floored with that line. He's smart, too. Oh, my God. So that did it for you. Because I had a problem with him seducing another man's wife with literally three sentences oh, of dialogue. terrible. But I, I, but it actually worked. Like, oh, my but God. But it would have worked on you is if what you're saying. the dialogue is that good, I mean, yeah. I'm just, he's betting me. I mean, You're I, jumping in the car is what you're if saying. If the line is that good, I'm getting. Come on, come on, James, get in, come on, let's go. But then he pulls the stunt of, yeah, let's go to my place, and he just does the roundabout, and he drives so fast, and oh my god, I'm gay now. That's what it is. You know. Did that happen? Can that happen? I don't think so, but it, it, it does happen here. I mean, he's charming the shit out of me. I mean, every woman in the Bahamas just ogling him back and forth, the tennis girls, the, the girl at the front desk, and he's not scuzzy about it either. No. There, the, there, was, there was times, like... He does get a little gross in some scenes, right. but there's enough bright siding, especially in contrast with everything we've talked about in the Bond movies leading up to this, where there is progress being made. Like, it's not the same grossness that we're talking about, even just one film before with Pierce Brosnan and Holly Berry, which I really, I mean, that does, it's quite obvious, and I did appreciate it. Well, look, as a straight man, I think, well, anyway. <laughs> I, you know, back. I can't complain about, you know, all the women coming out of the water in previous Bond movies. I mean, it's gorgeous. I guess we're fine. But this movie's progressing. I mean, this is Bond coming out of the water. You get goods for everybody else in this movie. It's not just the man fantasy, the straight white man fantasy. It's it's more than that. Yeah, he does the exact same shot coming out of the water that Holly Berry did not Die Another Day. And I can't help but wonder if Martin Campbell was like, that was an apology on his end, being like, we have to have this shot with you right. because of how far we've gone with this franchise thus far but it's also a fantasy in the sense that oh my god the tourism boom for these cities michael the bahamas i mean would you ever want to go to a place more if you knew that criminals were not involved like i would want to go to this hotel over everything it looks stunning it really does i mean the settings that they find for these places are just absolutely jaw-dropping it doesn't even start like that this starts as like a noir right but i mean you got to have this as like your you know, dream hotel. I mean, right. You get in there. I mean, 
everybody's gorgeous. I mean, you're on the beach, but it's not like a super hot beach. I mean, there's horses that will. W- no, I guess maybe it's not your dream spot. But there's a casino in the hotel. Is what I'm trying to get off. Get through. Right. It's just a, a place for me to gamble. That's all. It, it doesn't matter whether it's a beach or whether it's a back alley somewhere. As long as I can lay down chips. I think we're finding in this uh, this little dialogue between you and I that a tropical island with a lot of beautiful people around is what your happy place is. It would be a happy place, but also as a tourist, like I just wanted Bond and Vesper to walk around Montenegro. I just wanted them to walk around Venice, check out all the uh, antique shops. I don't care. I would. I wanted them to go to restaurants. Like I didn't need all the action sequences. Just I have just want... the beats of Call Me By Your Name in this Bond movie and that'll be it. I want a Bond movie about town. I want a romance. I want a, you know, the trip to Spain, but with James Bond and Vesper. I, that's what I want in this movie. I mean, it's that... Uh, you know, unbelievable to me. I want to go to these places more than I've ever wanted to go to a place in a Bond movie. Well, amongst all this gorgeous setting and all the uh, eye-popping beauty of all kinds that there is in this movie, we do have the super spy story playing out. And mm-hmm. to start having Bond just plain attend a Cobra versus Mongoose cockfight type setup is something I'd never ever be caught at doing. So that's why I can't be Bond. But he is also still Bond and he gets his man after surviving a shootout with the entire South African embassy. Oh he God. ends up sticking a bomb on a bad guy in the middle of a high-speed chase on a tarmac. He kicks ass in between rounds of high-stakes poker that he eventually dominates at anyway, etc., etc. So you do get a super spy, regular Bond stuff, let's call it. There are problems with this, you know, down the line, but I think they're smartly written into the movie. However, if you don't want to be Bond at these card tables, if you don't want to be this Daniel Craig Bond in these action sequences, then your fantasy life needs work out there, folks, because (laughs) this guy is more of an action hero than his predecessors. He's more convincing, and then he is as cool as they come on a card table. Has he won your heart here? Is this your Bond now? Is this your guy? I mean, it's just one movie on the rewatch. I've seen all these movies. <laughs> I know. But like, I mean, just I've never heard you gush backs. like this. I feel like you're talking about a crush. Coming off the backs of all these other movies, man. I mean, maybe it's just my generation's Bond and I'm just in. But, oh, my God. I love I loved Daniel Craig as Bond in these. <laughs> I'm very, I'm taking a side. I'm very happy. I hope you and him like can find a happy life together. You sound very smitten with him. I'm but in love go- with James Bond in these James Bond movies. <laughs> let's go to the live and let dad joke section. There were some good one-liners and quotes that Bond and others did have in this. Now, he has one-liners, but are these jokes considered dad jokes necessarily? No, he's script- way too cool. Yeah, did the script move away from dad jokes? These these lines seem more clever. I agree. He's way too cool and way too, like, you want to be, as as you just talked about in the last 10 minutes, uh, you want to be this James Bond. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, if he meets Vester and she goes, I'm the money, and he just goes, cha-ching. All right, maybe that's a dad joke. But he just. Oh, I want that now. <laughs> he just coolly said, hmm, every penny of it. <laughs> just, just like the slyest thing to say. It was oblique. I loved it. <laughs> that didn't that didn't happen, thankfully. Uh, he's talking about getting a nice piece of lamb after just getting dressed down and kind of a tongue lashing from Vesper on the train. She goes after after basically emasculating him, how was your lamb? Scared. One sympathizes. Yeah. I, I, I get it. that. This first drink order, his two drink orders is, oh, it's so good. Like, he does the elaborate order of a martini, and then the four guys, you know, next to him, they're like, I'll also have a Samuel Adams, or whatever. I mean, it's ridiculous, see, but it's funny. And then the second drink order, the bar, he goes to the bartender, vodka martini, and it's coming off this huge accent sequence where he almost dies or whatever, and the guy goes shaking or stirred, and he's like, do I look like I give a damn? Yeah, oh, this ain't your that. daddy's James Bond the best i was so happy with that i just think that's brilliant and they, they you know they did that to the script throughout i mean we're gonna talk about some action scenes too he returns to the table a big high stakes poker match after nearly dying of poison during one of the the breaks that they had in the game oh i'm sorry that last hand nearly killed me oh perfect <laughs> we're gushing right now but like some of these one-liners is cool are cool as shit so and they continue even in the crazy action scene in the torture scene. My God, it might yeah. be the most badass line of the century. I've got a little itch down there. 
would you mind? What the <laughs> hell is wrong with this crazy bastard? As he's getting whipped, he's making he's basically oh. mocking Mads Mickelson, yeah. As badass as, as ever. And then, you know, I think Ava Green, she drops one of the lines of the franchise that actually made me tear up a little bit because she's tearing up. So this is what good acting does, folks. But she goes, you know, James, if all that was left was your smile and your little finger, you'd still be a more more of a man than anyone I've ever met. And I'm I'm thinking, oh my god, I did this is of course I agree. And I, <laughs> and, but th- then he goes, he goes, that's because you know what I could do with my little finger. Now that was a sly comeback, mm-hmm. and she calls him out for it. You know, she calls him out for it. She's like, oh, your guard's up again, huh? You know, we're going to do this bullshit. I'm just, I'm telling you right now that, I, you know, you can have me. And then he ups the ante and tells her that he loves her, essentially. I, you know, whatever I got left, it's yours. But it's also a sly way to say, you know, his dick works. Because she's like, I've confirmed your dick still works. In a couple days, this is on. <laughs> I love that. It's great writing. I the the second happiest I've seen you to any movie that wasn't Dolomite is my name. Is you talking about this right now? I'm very excited that you're this excited well, about this movie. We got to put a damper on it though. We do, we unfortunately. Doctor, please, oh God, no. Bonds issues with women, and though although it's progressing, he still has some issues with women here. So the first one we already kind of covered, and it's early on, and he's talking with Valenka, who's basically this rich asshole's wife, who Bonds able to seduce within three lines of dialogue i thought it was a little unbelievable but hearing how it worked in seducing you uh in the non in the couple <laughs> minutes ago when we were talking about this i'm more willing to go lenient on it so you start you take the lead here what else you got with issues with well, women just for, you know to piggyback on that again you know he gives her the caviar at the end i mean he ordered uh, okay she gets tortured <laughs> and she dies in horrific yeah. fashion in a hammock but at least she has a good last meal i guess he's but... also willingly going after another man's wife just he to kind of stick it to him <laughs> He's working her, but and it, yeah, he's a scumbag, but he's still our scumbag, I guess. Anyway, <laughs> he's definitely yours, Mike, for right now. There's a funny exchange before the poker game between he and Vesper as they're outfitting for the night and for the evening, right? He leaves a dress for her, and it looks like just a couple of pieces of wire. Mm-hmm. And she's like, What the hell are you doing? And he's like, I, I, I need you in this dress. I need you when you kiss my neck. I mean, he's up in the ante, etc., etc. But she fires right back at him and, and has, you know, there's a dinner jacket. And then he's like, what do you mean I have a dinner jacket? Din- there's dinner jackets and then there's dinner j- jackets. He's like, this is tailored. He's, she's like, I sized you up the moment I met you. Yeah. Boom, drop the mic. I thought it was great. And then when she comes down, Mike. She does nothing that he tell you know she he told her to do, right. which is great. Just you know, fuck you, James Bond. Mm-hmm. And she, the person she distracts the most is James Bond, and he fucks up the biggest hand of well, the second biggest hand of the movie because he's like, like <laughs> lost the powers with the, with, the, with the oil or something. It's great. I really, really did like the way her character was written overall, even though it gets a little predictable at the end. But that's fine. I I, I really like she doesn't really give James Bond an inch. And in other movies, when you have that character, that female character who was supposed to not give James Bond an inch, they eventually succumb to just like being his sexual toy. Right. And he's like, he sleeps with her in a tryst, like you said earlier, and just he's done with her. She wasn't letting that happen. She was written to not be that type of woman. I really appreciated that. Yeah, it's melodrama in the other James Bonds. Like, they right. won't give him an inch, but it's it's like a game. Like, no doesn't mean no. And mm-hmm. when they finally say maybe, he takes the mile. And, right. and that, that's not the case here. I mean, there's a... There's a lot of consent, and there's over-elaborate ways where Vesper, you know, offers her consent. consent. So it, it is refreshing in a way. Now, one of the scuzzier scenes, and it doesn't really play well, and it doesn't play to a sex scene, but we have Vesper after the fight in the, uh, in, in the stairwell, after Bond kills a couple guys. We have that, her sitting catatonic in the shower, right? Mm-hmm. Sitting on the bottom. She's still fully clothed. She's in the dress, which, again, shows Bond what she thinks of the dress. But Mod right. comes in, sits down next to her, and she's like, how do we get the blood off her hands? And then he sucks two of her fingers. Yeah, that was I, terrible. <laughs> it was so gross. Like, that's just skeevy to me. Like, it, 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 she doesn't go for it. And then there's, like, this, you know, sentimental scene where they hold each other. But what the hell was he thinking? Was he just like, maybe she's into this? Let me try? So what the hell? If if the context or, like, if something about that scene was... This isn't your father's James Bond, because in every other James Bond prior to this, this would lead to sex. 
and she doesn't go for it. But she's still needs. They need to comfort each other. They're both shaken by what just happened. So it was like this actual nice, tender relationship building moment. The sucking of the fingers is totally unnecessary, and I think she should have slapped him, but she didn't. And she actually seeks comfort to put her her, her head on his shoulder afterwards. So there is some kind of kinship between the two of them, and it didn't lead to even a kiss, which I did appreciate. It's not like they obviously he is still horned up he's james bond but it doesn't go anywhere which was nice and i think it would have gone clearly everywhere with any other bond before this one well now we know that vesper lind is basically weighing the entire situation that she's got her boyfriend that's captured that she's trying to figure out how to deal with james bond does she have to kill james bond i think it's going to come out in the next movie we'll talk about it more in a minute but did she tell lachif that that Bond had a tell and Mathis is vindicated in further movies. I mean, again, we're going to get to it, but I think here she's weighing the entire situation. And although it's a bit ambiguous in the next scene because she wakes up in the bed alone, it looks like she's unclothed, but it, it doesn't seem like they did anything because later on there's that over elaborate way in which they consummate the relationship for the first time where she right. you know, consents to do so. So it's like, all right, they probably didn't do it there. They'll do it later. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a good call. And again, I just wonder how much of this was kind of the subversion of what you're to expect from other Bonds. Right. And if that was what that was for, I, it wasn't the cleanest way to do it. And it still kind of was gross to watch, but I at least understand it. Now, this is a smaller thing, but still probably very wrong. Like, she's dead. <laughs> and that's not how you do CPR. <laughs> Let's just say it. <laughs> yeah, at that point, he was in love, though, right? And he yeah. was, like, trying to... Uh, yeah, you're right. It was terrible. Like, this is what I'm saying. At least uh, in previous Bonds, when he was doing gross stuff, it was just out and out disgusting. Mm-hmm. At least this one, not that you're making excuses for him, but at least, like, okay, I can see a world in which a rational, reasonable human being would do that thing. And there was enough of a relationship established between the two of them prior right. where he admitted he was in love and all that. So, okay. Still, that's not where the sternum right. is. Right, right. That's it. It's medically inaccurate. I agree. Uh, but I, they do have checks on James Bond throughout this movie, like you've been saying. Vesper's a major check, but M, Judy Dench. Yeah rips Bond a, a new one every time they speak. I feel like Bond should be wincing every time he goes toe-to-toe with M because she's like, you're an idiot, and these are the people that died badly because of you, and th- you're fucking up this entire situation. She does that the whole movie, and, and she doesn't call him a you know, sexist, misogynist dinosaur, but right. you, can, you, you know that echoes from the last film. Yeah, and uh, M keeps him on the straight and narrow and proves that he's an idiot sometimes. Ava Green literally saves this super spy's life directly, right. like two or three separate times in this movie. So he is, he has faults. He's written weaker than other Bonds, and he is dependent on these badass women, which is awesome to see. It is awesome to see, but unfortunately, we got some more ethical issues with this movie, and the segment for that is Always Say Never Again, our moral issues with the film, and some of the worst scenes and themes, Michael, recent events, worldwide events, make this movie tough to watch. Most notably how Bond kills black bad guys in this film in particular. So we, we have to break it down. We have to talk about it. It, it. Look, I think in terms of cast structure and the roles of an ensemble, I do believe that obviously any race of people should be allowed to play every type of character and function in a movie from heroes to allies to villains. Obviously, though... On, on the flip side of that, there, there's levels of good taste. And I, I think, you know, recent events just make these kills really tough to watch. I mean, he's choking a guy out. I mean, he's shooting people just, you know, when he's not supposed to be shooting people, even by the standards of his government, like the law, rules of engagement. He is breaking those. And the race of these characters, it does matter in retrospect. Yeah. And, and it's not so much that it happens it's that it happens so callously removed from the plot it's unnecessary so it's kind of stark in contrast and yeah we know bond goes rogue at times but he's just literally i mean he cold-blooded pulls the trigger when he doesn't have to at times he makes his own call and then he tries to even his reasoning for it is undermined immediately by m who dresses him down for it and says what what the fuck are you thinking that i guess you could take some solace in but yeah it's i agree with you it's 
especially with 2020 eyes, especially in the moment we're living in right now, watching him basically cold-blooded murder <laughs> these South African people on the South African embassy's base. Uh, terrible. Absolutely horrible. He's got a license to kill, and he does kill white people as well. And again, you know, the caste structure can go any which way. I'm not saying that it shouldn't. And, and it could be, you know, Idris Elba is Bond and killing people, and we'd still say, all right, this is law enforcement, you know, doing what they're doing here. So again, you know, a new eyes to this, it does change things. It was the hardest thing to rewatch, I would say. But like, I do think in a movie about spies that are supposed to be ruthless killers, it is a strategic choice to make this Bond as cold-blooded as he is because I think that's more refreshing than John Wayne Bond, who needs you to draw first, right? Or who needs you to, you know, be the aggressor. I mean, I think that's, you know, just American, you know, retroactive bullshit in all those old-school action movies. So at least here, you know... I guess you're going on in on the assumption that the rules of engagement is that this is war and he has the license to kill for that reason. But there's a line too, right? Like he shoots a guy in his back. That's gross. He yeah. literally straps a bomb to a guy's belt loop and then smiles when it when it goes off, knowing that the guy's going to go into a billion. Like that stabs a guy in the airport. Right. Like <laughs> you could have incapacitated him. There's lines that he crosses that are you don't. I understand if you want to push the envelope, but the tone doesn't go for that. It just kind of takes it all for granted and says, look how cool James Bond is. I mean, look, he just gushed over the guy, right? So it's it's just saying how like how suave and how debonair and what a badass he is. But yeah. it's you got to address this stuff. They it, convey his, yeah, they convey his executions as badassery right. in, a, in a way in this film. Now, in 2006, it kind of plays more that way because we're coming off all these sure. anti-hero stories. Sure. And in the arc of the story, this overall, you know, franchise story and, and his character, it still can be redeemed. And, and it is opposed in this movie, like you said, by M, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you, they're writing it in knowing full well that, that, it's, that it's dicey to deal with. And, but at least they're dealing with it here, I guess. Yeah, like I said, if you, if you want to take solace in there is one character calling him out and saying some things he does is stupid, there is the M character. I don't think she does it nearly enough to counterbalance. Like, he does... He, he, we've seen James Bond lose his double O status because of stupidity, and that's, right. never an ob, that's never an issue here. He's never really... There's no consequence for his actions for the most part. Well, no way to transition, but we do have a positive segment coming up, I think, maybe, because we're going to talk about <laughs> Q only lives once, the cars, the gadgets, and tech of James Bond, but where is Q? This may be the quickest segment ever. Yeah, Q's not in this movie. <laughs> so we get tracking devices, we, we get the self-applied medical kit, uh, we get the Aston Martin DBS V12. That's my favorite car so far of any every Bond car we've watched. And can I just say, that is my favorite reversal in, like, the 2000s, maybe? Like, when you have Bond hopping in that car, going to save the girl, right? Mm. You think it's going to be the big car chase, the big finale, and oh my god, they subverted your expectations, they undercut it. Immediately, she's in the road, he's got a swerve, and he's yeah. captured and incapacitated as badly as any spy has ever been incapacitated. And then he's tortured. Oh my god. God, what a reversal. Yeah, I'm with you. That was very, very wisely. Uh, it was a genius subversion. I loved it. I like the computer hacking, but it all kind of boils down to, like, the tech of this movie is that Bond can text now, and he could... <laughs> Nothing <laughs> makes a film feel more antiquated than the <laughs> cell phone technology they, the characters rely upon. And this one seemed like it was out of the Stone Age. Right. No phone has a password for it. And he could just look at everybody's text because it's a flip phone. You got to flip it open for Right. <laughs> and he got like the uh, the timestamp on the security footage somehow because, well, no, he, he got it in a very smart way. He looked at when the call was and he realized the timing of it. And then he played that gag, you know, with the uh, crashing the cars at the Bahamas Hotel. And he learned when you know, the, the the person was texting and he actually saw it on video. Like it was genius and he figured out Demetrius was the one who did it and when. 
Now, the lack of tech, I think, is purposeful because we had gone, again, we've gotten too far and with invisible cars and just ridiculousness. Correct. So, and, and the wanting to this one to be more of a gritty and more of a realistic James Bond, especially in the introduction of this character, uh, I think that was with intent. And that could have been the reason that Q was excused from this movie altogether because they just wanted this to be reliant on, be as real and relatable as possible with only relying on cell phones and cameras and stuff like that. So I could appreciate that. Well, there's a reason Tomorrow Never Dies, though, Mike, because the villains can't seem to kill it. However, I thought the villainy was pretty top-notch in this movie, so I have some questions because there's layers to it. So do I, but you go first. Go ahead. A few stupid questions to start off, though. How did that airport bad guy not feel the keychain carabiner (laughs) flopping back and forth on his ass? Like, he had a few minutes of moving around to not feel that thing. You got a bomb on your butt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, if I'm butt-dialed, I, f- I feel it no matter where I am. But, all right, whatever. Uh, what's the point of Lashif's number two, the bald guy? Does he ever get to do anything? What? Is he just supposed to be, you know, posing, like, looking like a tough guy, the number two? What? First of all, yes, to answer your question. He's useless. <laughs> what was Lashif? What was he doing? Like I don't like I understand he was this market manipulator and he was in this high stakes poker game and he's he's all about the gamble and the risk and he owes money to some worse people than him. Why is he bothering with if he knows the people that want their money are going to come for him? Why are you torturing James Bond? So he needs the password right. to get the money to repay his debts plus hopefully take a cut for himself, I guess. But I think primarily he's trying to repay his debts because in this movie, the chief is Howard Ratner, Adam Sandler from Uncut Gems. I mean, he is <laughs> right, on, he like, is a gambling bender. <laughs> like he is losing so hard, and obviously he's not trying to gamble as much as he's trying to manipulate markets, like you said. So my bigger question is: Are they blaming nine eleven in two thousand six on Lashif, saying that on nine twelve whoever shorted the market? you know, made a killing. But Mike, I mean, if that was the case, if anybody shorted air, you know, airline stocks on nine, nine, 10, then the American government with all their force would have come after them first and foremost. That would have been the most obvious thing in the world. I tell you, I didn't, that's not what I got out of that. I got that he was, that that just made him more unethical is that he was profiting off nine 11. But uh, that's the intimation. I totally went over my head because I was just lost in what the hell this guy was doing when he turns out to not even be the big bad guy at the end of it. So you could be completely right. That could have been the structure of what that was meaning more so than just uh, further what a bad guy Lashif is. But I think what's more interesting about this movie it's not Lashif. It's Vesper, and it's her connection to this overall syndicate of bad guys that we don't have a name for yet. You know, headed by Mister White, who is the liaison to Lashif's deal with the uh, with the military at the beginning of the movie, and then who shows up a couple times, who Bond captures at the end. But Ves- Vesper needs Lashif to get away with the money so that the syndicate of bad guys gets the money, right? Or her boyfriend's dead. So I have questions about what Vesper is doing because she saves Bond at a couple instances. I'm wondering if she told Lashif about Bond's tell. I mean, these are all questions that the movie is setting up for the next few movies, isn't it? Or do we get those answers in here? I'm confused. Does this whole fucking thing rely on Felix? reposting bond like does every is everyone bailed out because felix stepped up to the plate and just said here take five million dollars to buy back in because nobody else was going to give bond that money what happens if bond didn't have that money they were just relying on lashif to win the pot well vesper was purposefully not giving bond the money right. so that bond would lose and lashif right. would win and her boyfriend would be so that's know, safe. so they were saying basically lashif couldn't possibly lose even though there was a bunch of people still in the game at that point Right, in a way, or Lashif, you know, he was the odds-on favorite. Yeah, he was the heavy favorite, right. So, I guess Um, Felix Americans fucked it up, bottom line. Americans fucked it all up. What a surprise. Yeah, there was, I mean, there was, look, we've, we've dissected a billion movies on here. There were, I was left with questions. I do like that this was kind of a cliffhanger, because you're right, this is a kickoff to this bigger world web of syndicate that Bond is going to be chasing. And it was, obviously, they wanted to start universe building, and they hadn't really done that in previous Bond movies before. So that was kind of cool. 
I forget what your question was, if I'm being honest, though. It's all right. <laughs> We're moving on. I kind of I think we answered it. But I, I overall, though, I want to ask, does James Bond lose as much as he wins in this story? Because I think that's important for kind of an act one of the overall tale. Right. Because, yeah, you know, yeah, he gets Mr. White at the end, but he's no closer to finding the sick uh, syndicate. He declares his everlasting love to the point where he resigns from MI6 for Vesper. But she is shown to be. Oh, my God, just heart-wrenching stuff. She is shown to be going against him because she's trying to save a boyfriend because she's still in love with a boyfriend, even though she seems to be in love with Bond. What's the deal there? But she literally commits suicide by locking the elevator herself, right? And she knows she's going to drown, and then she kind of self-drowns her, you know, before Bond can uh, can save her. She wants to die in that moment. It is just horrific to think about all the levels of that. Why does she do that? Because she figures she's screwed? She figures that she betrayed him and she can't live with herself. And she she figures that her boyfriend's dead. She figures that her world has just come crashing down like a Venice house built on balloons, which apparently <laughs> Venice houses are built on balloons. How does that city still stand? Like, how is it not sunk like Atlantis by now, Mike? <laughs> We're asking the hard-hitting questions here in this James Bond character. She's a broken woman. She's broken in that scene. Like, she's done, like... Such terrible things in her mind, I guess, that she wants to die. What? I have a billion questions still about Me this. Too. I I don't understand what exactly everyone's motivations were and why they did this. Like, why is Lashif just just killed in that moment? And if Lashif is killed, why isn't James Bond murdered or at least cut his fingers off one by one until he gives up the password? Because well, they figure they have they can rely on Vesper to do it later anyway. Mister White made a deal with Vesper. Okay, so Lashif is about to kill Bond or worse, which is just insane to think how gross he's going to be and and take Bond. Oh, good. But Mr. White makes a deal with Vesper. Vesper's like, I'll get you the money. I'll still save my boyfriend. You'll still get the money syndicate and make everybody whole. So Mr. White is like, we can't trust Lashif because he's gambling with the money. Right. I mean, it's just terrible. He's failed so thoroughly. So you're dead, Lashif. And then where's Mathis come into play in all this? Well, Mathis is that character that I don't know if he gets redeemed in the next few movies. I thought he did because I thought he's in another Bond movie. Well, I, I haven't seen these movies in years, so yeah, me we'll either. have to. You know, that'll be a thread we'll have to uh, we'll have to finish later on. But you know, technically, Bond gets Mister White's suitcase by the end of it all. The syndicate of bad guys doesn't get their money, so Bond does win there a little bit. But thematically or philo- philosophically, Bond's broken at the end of this movie too i mean he's fighting nihilism with nihilism I mean, he's a broken-hearted bond i mean we have this as a hell of a setup for this character overall and that is gonna matter like we've seen him we've seen james bond get married before and have it only last for the duration of that particular film in terms of actual for like 10 minutes yeah right exactly as far as how it actually matters so it is him falling in love i i didn't like it first because i was like i was had my old james bond mindset but the fact that it is going to matter and carry through. I do appreciate that. I do like that because he's already this cold-blooded, ruthless, licensed-to-kill guy. What's going to stop? What's he have to lose now? So, yeah, to answer that question, which you did ask me about 20 minutes ago, and I'm finally getting back around to because you've asked it a couple more times since because I'm dumb, uh, I do think he lost enough to make it matter and to be interested and intrigued into where this goes. She saved his balls. Let's just say that. Yeah. So his balls belong to her now. That that logically makes sense <laughs> to someone like James Bond, a blunt instrument like James Bond. I love that line as well. But let's talk about Goldfingers, and this is where we type out how we'd fix the problems of the antagonism to defeat Bond on our gold-plated typewriter, Mike, and our fingers are gold. So once and for all, how would you do it here? I got to start with with asking you, like, Lashif is basically Howard Ratner on that gambling binge. Right. How do you act when you're on these whatever gambling binges? Or how does one, let me rephrase, <laughs> how does one get out of this to the point where their legs aren't broken? Because uh, I don't know how they, they fix this. I... Uh, uh, I I don't have answers. <laughs> um, my answer was going to be the chief needs to have better bodyguards to watch the door if he's going to torture someone. And by the way, if you're going to yes. torture someone, start torturing them. Like, cut off toes, man. Cut off Ugh. fingers. Don't just whip a guy and then hope he's going to give you the information. Make threats. Do something. Well, we talked about if Bond was going to get 
badder than the villains had to get even worse and this movie does that so this is as dark a scene as we've ever seen in a bond movie but i i don't know i guess my answer is the is the obvious one but i don't think i would have done it so it's this is hard it's hard to do the goldfinger segment here because le Chiffre probably should have tried the obvious passwords like if he had a tech tech guy and you know that the woman that you captured has a six letter name maybe try her name just as an obvious password perhaps <laughs> one two three four five six damn one two three four five seven damn that would have been the ultimate comeuppance for bond's reckless arrogance they found out your password in seconds because you're an idiot yeah, you're right. That actually would have fit really well with what they were trying to do with this James Bond. I think you might have just solved the whole thing. Let Lashif get access to it because it's such a simple password. I agree. That would have been much more intriguing than having him just catch a random bullet in the head and then have this introduction that's kind of truncated into the 25 minutes to introduce this whole syndicate. Look, I don't want to enable all of these uh, computer hackers out there if they're listening somehow to us. <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, try the obvious passwords, perhaps. It's, we've seen it done in other movies. I like it. I agree. Just don't try it on my accounts, please. Uh, let's wrap up here, Mike, and talk about a license to bill. We can tally up and account for all the damages Bond caused and what it might cause. I was shocked. At how little damage, how little municipal damage there was caused in this movie, relatively I we, speaking. I think we can actually put a monetary value on this this movie. So yeah. let's try let's try that for once. I, I didn't write any of this down, so let's just try and put a put a monetary value. One bathroom at the beginning. What does that bathroom cost? You think? I mean, a sink came down. That's like four hundred bucks. A couple of mirrors. Yeah, you got yeah. a sink, a mirror, and a stall. Basically, is what you need to replace. So I don't know. Even with like, even if you go high grade, three grand, five grand. Let's say at the top, top end. All right. So let's say five grand. Now the construction site. It's not entirely, you know, destroyed. He runs through a wall. <laughs> the cranes drop. Right. All these piping. <laughs> The cranes are being fought upon, uh, but I don't know if any of those were destroyed. So what would you just say the piping that fell from the sky and a couple of the walls would cost at that construction site? Yeah, let's let's say another let's go high end again and say 20. Let's say there was 20 grand they got and, and just raw materials they need to replace. All right, very good. So that's 25 grand. One gas truck at the airport. I'm shocked they didn't cause more damage at the airport. But Me one too. gas truck, one luggage carrier, one bus transport. What do you think those car those, those vehicles go for? No. I would say but the luggage carrier probably 3 grand. I think the airport's cheap out on those. You think so? I was going to yeah. say a little more expensive because they have to be custom. Okay, we'll go with that. We'll just say 3 grand for that. The uh, 5 grand. Let's okay. stand five. 5 so grand. 30 grand. Uh, let's say the the bus was what? Probably. Well, the tanker's the most expensive, right? That's like 75. Oh wow. So that's 105 grand now total. And then the bus transport is that 25, 30? Yeah. We'll, we'll call that 25. So one we're up to 130, 105 to 130. All right. Okay. Did he break anything in Montenegro? Like the, I mean, he fought in a stairwell. I don't think he broke anything in the stairwell. That's fine. Yeah, I think he's okay there. One Aston Martin DBS. <laughs> what does that cost? That's got to be like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> well, that's it's custom made. I put two hundred grand on it. That's a testament to how frugal these <laughs> filmmakers were, the storytellers. Mike, the car that you just mentioned, I'm sure it's at least that much, if not two hundred k. That car cost more than the previous three action sequences <laughs> in terms of the damage. So Which, by the way, it brings up the question, why are they outfitting him with such nice cars all the time? They know what happens to them. They should know what happens to them. But all right, we're up to 280, 280K. One Venice building that is somehow built on balloons. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's that's going to be uh, probably priceless. Let's call it... A couple mil, probably. Yeah, right? I was going to say five mil. Wow. So they left the biggest destruction to last. So five million... What did we say? Two hundred... Or th five million, two hundred eighty thousand is the number we came up with. That is not bad. <laughs> the last few movies have been in the trillions. They've been priceless, yeah. Ruined artifacts and, yeah. I'll take 5.2 million of damage for a James Bond movie any day. Wow. You know, uh, under budget. They're under budget at the end of the day. They probably, MI6, MI6 is throwing on. a fucking party for how little money he costs them this time. If it's all about accountants running MI6, they got to be loving this James Bond. 
Uh, that is where we can end this look back at Casino Royale. That is it for the James Bond character study for the month of July. Like we said at the top of this show, we will have one Daniel Craig Bond movie for every month coming up until No Time to Die, hopefully, does debut in November. But uh, in the meantime, as always, we do want to hear your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about this movie. Do you think our accounting here at the end, as far as the James Bond damage, is anything closer, or are we greatly missing something important? Uh, what did you think about the shortcomings? Were they as glaring to you in this movie as they were to Mike and I? Let us know. You can leave us those thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, or uh, as well about anything else we do in the MMO Empire. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts. And if you're quarantining with us on Apple Podcasts, we cannot thank you enough. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be greatly appreciated. Michael, uh, what is coming next from us, and what are some words of wisdom? So we're going to do the Nomcast crossover with Andrew Morgan there, but we're going to do it for this weekend. Uh, I'm recording it with him on Friday night, just some scheduling stuff. That's why Bond got moved up. I don't remember if we said that was going to be the midweek show for this week. Probably should have said that at the top of this show. But you're, you got Bond midweek. You're still getting the uh, crossover with the Nomcast. We haven't watched Homemade yet, but we're thinking we're going to do an episode on all those short films, which is going to be a fun way to talk about quarantine. Uh, I, I think Andrew and I have to do it together and leave you out of it because you're a little too negative and we want to have a positive episode on quarantine. Yeah, that checks out. All right, but we got MMOW, so you and I will, will tackle MMOW for the start of next week. I'll bring we you Palm... back down to reality. <laughs> we have Palm Springs. First Cow just got uh, you know its release date for 710, coming from 824. So we got a couple of movies that are critically acclaimed to review over the next few weeks. Greyhound, The Old Guard, Mike, why do we have to have four big movies released all at once They've when no big this. movies? Yeah, they keep doing this. Defy Bloods and the King of Staten Island came out on the same day, and we get no good big movies, let's just say. We got some good ones, some hidden gems. We've reviewed them. But we get we get them all at once in these clusters, and then we got to review them all at once. And I, I'm just going cross-eyed. But we're going to have four reviewable movies that we'll review in some way, shape, or form uh, at the you know the early stages of July. In terms of words of wisdom, just happy 4th, everybody. Stay safe. And, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, have fun, but stay safe. Yes, uh, very important. Please have fun, stay safe, and stay the hell away from one another. Guys, when reality sucks, <laughs> you can come watch these movies with us and hopefully share some laughs. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffings. We will see you all very soon. See you.